Daniel 7 describes four beasts who ruled the world. The first is a lion with eagle's wings. This fierce lion represents Babylon, just as the head of gold did in Daniel 2. Babylon ruled the world from 605 BC to 539 BC. By the way, Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 are parallel prophecies. The second beast is a bear with three ribs in its mouth. The bear represents the Medo-Persian Empire. The three ribs are symbolic of the three kingdoms conquered by the Medo-Persian armies. Those kingdoms were Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt. Medo-Persia ruled the world from 539 BC to 331 BC. Daniel saw the bear was raised up on one side, indicating one of the two kingdoms was stronger than the other just as one arm is typically more dominant or stronger than the other. The third beast is a leopard having four wings and four heads. The leopard represents Greece, led by Alexander the Great. The wings represent the speed which young Alexander conquered the world. The four heads of the leopard represent Alexander's four generals, Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. After Alexander's death, these four generals divided the kingdom and fought amongst themselves for control of Alexander's empire. Greece ruled the world from 331 BC to 168 BC. The fourth beast was a dreadful, terrible, and exceedingly strong beast with great iron teeth. This beast with its iron teeth represents the same kingdom as the legs of iron. Those legs represented the pagan Roman Empire. Then Daniel focuses on the ten horns of this beast, and coming up among them is another little horn, who destroys three of the first horns, as if they were plucked out by the roots. Daniel says, in this horn were the eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. In our last program, we learned the ten toes of Daniel 2 were the ten barbaric nations which brought about the destruction of pagan Rome. Those toes are the same as the ten horns on the fourth beast of Daniel 7. How many of you have no idea what just happened? <laughs> Let me see your hands. I have no idea. And how many are hoping that I don't do that this morning? <laughs> I've got about four or five hands. There is a place for that kind of study. But I want us to visit Daniel chapter 7 in a little different way. I wanted to give you a flavor of what eschatology study looks like and all that's valid and important and I see value in it. But I think there's a mistake we make with that that I want us to pursue, uh, not pursue the mistake, but pursue the solution to that this morning. We're talking about your vision. How's your vision? Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. We need to see him in his glory. And then Paul said, I saw a man that gave him motivation and direction for ministry. And this morning, Daniel would stand here and say, I saw the future. And we seem to have a fascination with the future. All of us do. How many of you uh, would say there's something in the future you'd like to know in your life how it ultimately plays out? I worked for a carpenter for a while who regularly said if he knew where he was going to die, he'd never go near the place. We want to know what's out there ahead of us. We want to know what's coming. And there's a fascination that happens with eschatology, end time events. Now, God does give us insights as to what to look for and how to look for. So I want to give you a little primer on eschatology here just for a moment. The mistake that believers make with eschatology is this. We think that we can study and predict. That if we study it hard enough, we'll know what's coming. And there's nothing in Scripture that affirms that. Here's the theme of Scripture. Watch and be ready. So if you study the text and understand what it says, you'll recognize it when it comes. You'll not be able to predict it before it comes. Over my few years of ministry now... I think there have been four or five different men identified as the Antichrist who are now all dead. They get assassinated or something happens because we want to figure all of that out. We want to have solutions to all of that. And the goal for the church is, yes, read it, hear what he says, and then watch and be ready when those things begin to happen on the earth. We're to live in an attitude of expectancy. And there's so much dis unity that happens in eschatology. I met with one of our credential holders this week who's struggling with our position in the assemblies of God on eschatology. We have 16 fundamental truths. That links us together. 
and one of those he strongly disagrees with. And the only response, Pastor Tim, I could give him is then you're not part of our, our, our clan. You can't fellowship with us. There's 16 things that we identify as, as making up who we are, and you can't vary on those. But there's division, and there's uh, mysticism, and there's confusion, and there's allegory that all rolls in that because we try to use it to predict the future rather than watching and being ready for the future. Now, having said that, I want you to look at the text in Daniel chapter 7, and in every prophetic utterance, there is something revealed about God that is often overlooked because we want to know who the four beasts are and God wants us to know who he is. And when we look at the story, we'll see something about God that reveals his nature and his character as we look to the future. One of the uh, perfections of God theologically is that God is eternal. What does that mean? He has always been and he always will be. With that comes omniscience. There's nothing that God doesn't know. And so you have to grab hold of that when you look to your future. He's already been in the past. He's already in the future and one eternal now. And he knows everything that's going to happen to you. And when we look to the future, we need to approach it the same way that Daniel did when he looked to revelations about the future. So this morning isn't about eschatology and what's coming in the world system. It's about soteriology, your salvation, and what is happening in your future. How should we prepare? What should we see as we look to the future? Primary focus is described here in this first vision. Daniel 1 to 6 is a narrative account. We know about the children of Israel. We know Daniel is a man of valor and courage and strength. We know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as young men of character and strength and valor. We know that about them. And while there's some prophetic utterances in Daniel 1 to 6, it's primarily narrative, hearing their story. What kinds of men saw these visions and were used by God? Then in Daniel chapter 7, the direction changes. It becomes very apocalyptic, very much about the future and revelations about the future. And Daniel chapter 7 is the first revelation, really, that Daniel begins to see and tell us about. And in that initiatory vision, with that comes a revelation of how you and I should handle the future. So rather than focusing on the beasts and who the ten horns are, who are the three that gets plucked out, who's the little horn... Those things have value, but they don't have value if you miss seeing Jesus in the vision. You've got to see him there. What is it that I know then from Daniel chapter 7? I know that Daniel gets an explanation beginning in verse 23. But here's what I know before that. Daniel chapter 7 with this great vision of the four beasts. Verse 9 <laughs> As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Shout now, somebody. I said the Ancient of Days. Don't get your vision on that ugly beast. Get your vision on the Ancient of Days. What is this about? He is saying, I'm in charge. I'm going to show you what's going to happen, but before you see anything else or understand anything else, the Ancient of Days, God himself steps up and sits on the throne and says, I am in charge. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. I'm telling you what, let's have a prophecy seminar that focuses on that. Who is this ancient of days? What does it mean when he sits on the throne? Let's put our hope and our vision and focus on the one that it should be on, not the beast, but the one who says, I'm still on the throne. What a great title for our heavenly father. The word ancient of days says that he is from eternity. He has always been and he 
always will be. It's something that not one of us can say that we've always been. But he has always been and he always will be. He's from eternity. And the word used in some translations is that the venerable one. And I thought that's an interesting translation word. The word venerable means accorded a great deal of respect, especially because of wisdom or character. And I want us then to take the revelation that Isaiah saw and bring it now into our future, not only high and lifted up today, but in everything. Come on, hear me this morning. In everything that's going to be loosed on the earth, it's not about the Antichrist. It's not about the false prophet. It's not about the beast. It's not about the coming world kingdom. It's not about the mark of the beast. What is it about? The Ancient of Days, the High Holy One says, I'm sitting on my throne and I have a plan for this world that we need to see. In the midst of your future, just remember that God is on the throne. Everything needs to be viewed in that light. God is beginning to hold court. And when we don't understand what's happening around us, there is a presuppositional apologetic that we need to embrace that says this, I believe he's on the throne. <laughs> oh, you say, well, that's a little hard for me. You don't know what I'm going through. Uh, please don't think me unsympathetic. I'm very sympathetic. But what you're going through has no impact on whether or not he's on the throne. Come on, shout now, somebody. What you're going through has no impact on whether or not he's on the throne. Well, how can God be on the throne with all the trouble that's going on in the world? I've heard this several times in the last few weeks from different sources, and we struggle and we wonder about why do all these bad things happen if God is so good? We sing about him being good. How do these things happen? And I read a story about a pastor who was interacting with a man that he had met who was a soap uh, executive, had a great business selling soap. And the soap manufacturer, CEO, said to him, why is it if your God is so good that there's so much pain in the world? And the pastor said to him, what do you, what do you make? You make soap, right? It's the best soap in the world. He said, absolutely. It's the best soap in the world. He said, it's wonderful soap. There isn't anything our soap products can't clean. And he said, if your soap products are so good, why are there still dirty people? And the manufacturer said, well, that's obvious. The soap doesn't do any good unless it's applied. The brokenness and the damage of man does not reflect at all on the goodness of God. It demonstrates to us that if you don't apply the goodness of God, if you don't yield to the king who's on the throne, if you live by a different standard or a different guideline or a different way of living, you can't blame God for the impact of your choices. You can't blame poverty on God. You can blame it on ungodly regimes. You can't blame crime. I'm sorry about this. You're not going to like it. But you can't blame it on the government or on guns by themselves. You have to blame it on the broken, ruined hearts of mankind. Cain killed Abel with a rock. Man will find some way to do evil. You can't measure it by the circumstances. You have to measure it by men and women, boys and girls, who have chosen not to submit to the king who sits on the throne. And in his sovereignty, he allows you to make choices so that you're not a puppet on a string, but you will live by the consequences of your actions. Paul makes it very clear in Galatians when he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. If you do evil and reap good, God is a liar. If you do evil and reap good, it means that God isn't true. But God is not mocked. If you sow to the flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption. Don't sow carrots and cry because you don't reap radishes. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. But if you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap life everlasting. How can I be sure of that? Because I saw the Ancient of Days, and he is sitting on the throne. And in the revelation of things that are going to come into the future, we need to see him on the throne. He has a plan. Something is at work in the mind of God. And in your life this morning, when you look to your future, here's what I know. 
I can't promise you everything will be good. I can't tell you how he will choose to use you or what he'll allow to come into your life or what he'll do through you. But in the midst of your darkness, here's what I know. He's on the throne. He's on the throne. One of the worst things that can happen to a man or a woman, as Jake has shared with us this morning, is that sense of hopelessness. He knows where you are. He knows where he's on the throne. He's on the throne. And he has a plan in mind. It says that he rolls out his throne because he's holding court. <laughs> he's not holding court yet. <laughs> Are you hearing me? This isn't judgment day. This is the day of grace. This is the day of opportunity. This is the day of salvation. This is an opportunity for you to get right with God. But someday, his throne is going to slide out to center stage, and he will hold court. Naysayers, mockers, skeptics all around the world and throughout human history have shaken their fist at God and mocked him. And the only reason they get away with that is because this is not judgment day. I read a story about a mocker of God who called everyone to the center of the square and stood on a washtub and began to say, there is no God. And if there is a God, I dare you to kill me. I'll give you five minutes to kill me. And five minutes go by, four, three, two, one. People are getting nervous. They're expecting God to kill him. And 30 seconds, and then 10, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. He's not dead. And he said, therefore, God, there is no God. Pastor, he called him out of the crowd. Where's your God now? And he said, do you think that in your human wisdom that you could exhaust the long-suffering of my God in five minutes' time? <laughs> oh, there'd be none of us left. Hello? Are you hearing me now? There'd be none of us left. This isn't judgment day. But do not be mistaken. Do not forget. There will be a judgment day come. And on that day, everything will be made right. When I was in high school, I worked for an auctioneer that I respected greatly. He had ethical standards for auctions. He chose to not do auctions on Sunday so that he wouldn't have to miss church, and God was blessing him. He was building a reputation. We had an evangelist speaking one week, and at the end of the week on Thursday, the evangelist on Friday had to fly to a meeting in Texas to preach a youth rally and invited this deacon auctioneer to go with him, and they flew on Friday to the auction and then, or I mean to the, to, to the um, youth rally, and then flew back. We knew he got back to Cedar Rapids, but he didn't come home that night. Couldn't find him, didn't know where he was. Long story, but he had gone to make a sale at a cabin on the banks of the Cedar River. They saw two sets, of, they found his truck, two sets of footprints going in to the, down to the river, one set of footprints coming back. He'd been shot in the back three times, dumped in the river. Now, let me just show you some of the sovereignty of God. People are praying, where is he? What's happening there? They can't find the body. Nothing can happen because it's cold. I think it was in February, but it was cold, and the body wasn't floating. And one of the men in our church had a vision. They'd had scuba divers. They'd had everything looking for that body and said that God gave him a vision of where the body was, went out in a John boat with a rope, and a tine from a pitchfork bent like a giant hook and began to throw it in. What do you think are the odds that he's going to hook that body somewhere in that water? But as he's working the water in a place that God showed him where scuba divers had already been, he hooks this deacon and pulls him out of the water, shot three times in the back and dead. It was devastating. It was devastating to me, a man that I highly respected. Imagine what it did to his family. Imagine when she's standing in Walmart or Kmart and the man accused of the murder walks up to her and laughs in her face and walks away. Couldn't find the murder weapon. He gets off. 
she bought a gun, sat on the banks of the Cedar River and did target practice. She's going to settle the score. I was 16. I still don't have an answer to that except for this. It's not yet judgment day. I don't know what God's going to do through that. I know that in the midst of darkness, he brings light. I don't know the end result of that story, but there's coming a day when revelation will be given in heaven. And what I can tell you is it's not judgment day yet. And the only thing that kept her from putting herself in prison and shooting that man was an understanding that this isn't judgment day. Come on, someone help me this morning. It'll help you get through your He's on the throne now, and he's watching, but it's not judgment day. So what is he doing today? He's keeping record. He's keeping record. The Bible says in chapter 7, verse 10, records are being kept. I already read about the river of fire. The court, the court was seated, and the books were opened. You're not getting away with anything. Nobody's getting away with anything. He keeps accurate records. You know the Bible gives us some insight in some of the books that God's keeping? And there are probably more than this, but I just began to explore what kind of books is God keeping? What books would he have opened on that day? Well, one book that he opened we would find in Revelation chapter 3 and Revelation 21. It's called the book of life. To the church of Sardis, Jesus says this, He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. Revelation 21, 27, Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There is a journal, a record being kept, and when you invite Jesus into your life, I'll tell you what happens. Your name is inscribed in the Lamb's book of life. An entrance into heaven will be based not on your deeds, not on what you've done or not done, but by your relationship with Jesus Christ. When you trust him as your Lord and Savior, what happens? All of your sin is covered, blotted out by the blood of Jesus and you're put in the Lamb's book of life that gives you entrance into the heavenly city. This morning, I don't know where you live. I don't know what's happening with you. But the greatest tragedy that I could ever imagine is that you would attend this church and not know for sure that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That you've not made a surrender of your life to Jesus. Well, pastor, how do I do that? It's simple. You need to admit that you're broken. That's where it starts. I'm a sinner in need of repentance. There is none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then you need to believe that Jesus died for your sins. If you believe and confess that he died for you and rose from the dead, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The whole idea there is believing that Jesus paid the penalty for your sins. And then what do you need to do? You need to confess him as Lord. Admit your need. Believe in him. And with your mouth, confess him as Savior. And the moment that you do, there is someone in heaven, a heavenly scribe, who takes that heavenly pen and writes your name in that book. And when the day comes that you stand before God, that book will open. They'll see your name and you'll hear him say, well done, Good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. When I look to my future, I'm not looking at all the things I might accomplish. I'm looking to that day that that book will be open in church. I want my name in that book. I said, I want my name in that book. And I'm going to live my life so that my name is written in the Lamb's book. There's a book. Is your name in it? Is your name in it? There's another book. It's called the Book of Good Deeds, Malachi chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance 
was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty. In the day when I made up my treasured possession, I will spare them. Just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him, you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve and those who don't. It tells that your good deeds are being written in a book. Now let me back up to the story I just told with the Lamb's Book of Life. When you understand God's on the throne and getting people's name in the book of life is primary, then some things that are not called into a judgment might be a moment of grace for that individual to come to Jesus. Because the, mo excuse me, the most important thing in all the world isn't that you get justice today. It's that people find Jesus today. Come on, someone help me now. The greatest thing in all the world, you may have to go through a moment of injustice, and it might be the long-suffering of God giving someone an opportunity to find Jesus. Are you hearing me now? Because the biggest issue in this world isn't your comfort, it's your character, and it's not justice, it's Jesus. And we need to keep that in mind. But also understanding that the good that you do is also being written in a book. Well, nobody notices. Nobody cares. Nobody pays attention to all the things I'm doing. Oh, oh yes, they are. They're written in a book. They're written in a book. When you are walking to your car and that elderly lady is carrying a bag to her car and the bottom breaks out and you don't have time, but you turn around and walk over and help her pick those up and the love of God expressed to her, that's written in a book. When you do something to bless the lives of someone else, it's written in a book. That cup of cold water is written in a book. That hug to someone who is hurting is written in a book. Are you hearing me now? There's a book of your good deeds. It doesn't matter who else sees them because we are, we are living in a relationship with Jesus that he's keeping track of the good you're doing. It's in a book. And there's a day that book will be opened. Will you have anything in it? Will you have anything in it? Your good deeds are being written in a book. That's why the Bible says, let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. When your good works point men and women to Jesus, do you know what happens? He writes it in a book. It's all being kept. There's a book of remembrance of your good deeds that distinguishes from evil deeds. Have you ever heard it said that no good deed goes unpunished? We're not a works-oriented faith. I get that. But James says faith without works is dead. You don't have faith if you're not doing anything out of it. There's no reality if you don't act on your faith. And the skeptic, the secular would say, yeah, no good deed goes unpunished. I wondered where that came from. And I found it. It's in the Star Trek universe in the Ferengi Rules of Acquisition. The 285th rule says, no good deed ever goes unpunished. It didn't come from the Bible. It came from Star Trek. No, actually, it's before that. It's in a Brandon Gill book in 1950, The Trouble of One House. It's in a number of other sources. No one knows where it was found, but it's cited as a proverb in the premise by No Good Deed, a novel written by John Niven in 2017. And so from whenever the early 50s to this day, people like to say, no good deed goes unpunished. Well, I've got a better one for you. Are you ready? No good deed will go unrewarded. No good deed will go unrewarded. Men may not see and if you do it so they can see, so that you will get the praise, then you have your reward. But if you do it so they'll see and praise him, it's written in a book and it's being kept track of. Now, you may not like this. In addition to the book of life and the book of good deeds, you know there's a book of evil deeds? What you do in this life matters. It matters. You don't get away with anything. I, 
We had a family that attended our church, and the cookie jar was off limits before supper. Younger boy said to the older boy, let's go get some cookies out of the cookie jar. And he said, we can't. Mom and dad said not to do it. And he said, well, it won't matter. They're not home. They won't know. And he said, well, God will see it. And the younger boy said, not if we get under a box. <laughs> not if we get under a box. You may as well crawl around under a box as to try to hide from the eye of God. The Bible says if you, in, in Psalm 130, verse 3, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? None. That's what, that's what Romans 1, 2, and 3 is all about, that every mouth be found guilty, uh, be condemned, and, every, uh, and all stand guilty before God. There is no way we can stand. And then in Revelation chapter 20, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and then the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books, the sea gave up the dead. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And so not only will people be judged because they rejected Jesus, their life will testify of their rejection of Jesus. When you sin against him, it's in a book. When you rebel against him, when you do something mean, when you cheat on your taxes, when you take something that isn't yours, when you take advantage of someone, all of those things are being written in a book. Isn't that terrifying? Except if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I know my name's in three books. I have, a, I have, my, <laughs> I have my name in the Lamb's book of life. I have no doubt about that. His spirit bears witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. I also know there's a book with my good deeds written in it. I'm hoping there's a little bit there. But I think the biggest entry is the one of bad deeds. This may shock you, but I've done a few things wrong. In earlier, younger years. And if you open that book, do you know what you're going to see? You're going to see Gary Pilcher, and then you're going to see blood spot after blood spot after blood spot. It's probably chapters long, but it's all been redacted. It's covered by the blood of Jesus, and that's our hope. And if you don't get it under the blood, it's there, and it will be revealed in the day of judgment. There is a book of evil deeds. And then lastly, there's a book of spiritual life. There's a book of spiritual life. In Acts chapter 10, verse 4, we have the story of a man named Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear at the revelation, the appearance of the angel. What is it, Lord? He asked, and the angel answered, your prayers <laughs> and your gifts for the poor. Your prayers and your gifts for the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. God's keeping record of every time you pray. God's keeping record of every time you tithe. God's keeping record of every person who's struggling that you lend a hand or give an offering to or provide a meal for. He's keeping track in a book of the manifestations of your spiritual life. When you fast, it's written in a book. When you pray, it's written in a book. I'm telling you, he's keeping good records, and no one else may ever know. But I'm telling you, he's got a record of evidence of your spiritual life. Those tears you cried in the night, he's got your tears in a vial and your prayers in a book. <laughs> when you were driving down the road and 
and interceding before God, thinking that no one knew and no one saw your prayers and your alms, your benevolence, your gifts to help the needy. Aren't those good deeds? No, those are evidences of spiritual life, your prayer, your fasting, your spiritual disciplines. He's keeping in a book. I want that book to have a lot in it. <laughs> it's in his book. What are you putting in his book? What are you putting in his book? God sits on the throne and he's keeping records. The third thing that this vision tells us is that Jesus is coming back. <laughs> Hallelujah. Jesus is coming back. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Why do we miss this? Why don't we talk about this? In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me <laughs> who was one like a son of man. Do you know that he shows up in the Old Testament? You know where I saw him, where I'll see him, or where you saw him earlier in Daniel? It's when there were three young men walking in a fiery furnace, and the king looks in and he said I threw in three and now I see a fourth man in the fire and the fourth man looks like the son of God he is saying he saw him and Daniel saw him in the beginning of the revelation that God gave him there was one before me like a son of man coming with clouds of heaven he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence he was given authority Glory, sovereign power, all people, nations, men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, I, I saw him. I saw him the other day in Revelation chapter 1. His hair was like wool, his eyes flashed like fire. He's not. The, he's not the son of a carpenter today. He's the sovereign of all creation. And when he comes back, when God moves his throne to center stage, the God that has ruled over everything, that has an eternal purpose for mankind today that's beyond our understanding, there will become a moment that he'll say to his son, it's time, son. It's time for the consummation of the redemption of mankind for the very thing that Romans 8 tells us. All creation groans and travails. And I'm telling you, I'm just going to give you a little bit of moment into my view of eschatology. And you can disagree with this all that you want and write it in your own book. But I'm going to tell you in my book what happens in book of Revelation. There's a moment where there's 30 minutes of silence. And I've thought for years... What would be so awesome, what would be so mighty, what would be so powerful that the angels would hush their singing, that all of the heavenly hosts would bow in reverence and absolute silence. And I'm convinced it's that moment when God the Father looks to the right hand to God the Son and says, go bring your bride home. And he appears in the heavenlies and the things that angels have desired to look into, Peter says, become fulfilled as he comes to catch his bride away. He's coming back. He said he would, and he's coming after me. The angel said after Jesus ascended, this same Jesus, which you have seen go from you, will come again in like manner. He is coming back. And Daniel said, I saw him when I saw God on the throne. When I saw books being written, I saw one like the Son of Man. And he was given power and authority and dominion and an everlasting kingdom. I'm telling you, that's the hope of the church. Amen. It's not this day, but that day's coming. <laughs> Keep your eyes heavenward, church. Come on. Keep your eyes heavenward. Don't look at all the junk going on around you and, and, and wallow in the pain of this time of grace. Understand that it's about Jesus. 
and men and women coming into the family of God and that the judgment of God is being withheld because his mercy is being extended for men and women to surrender their lives to Christ. But one day that's going to stop as the, as the throne takes center stage and Jesus steps up <laughs> in all of his glory. He's coming back. He's coming in clouds. And to them that look for him, Will he appear the second time? I have an assurance. That a trumpet's about to sound. That an angel's about to shout. And then the dead in Christ will rise. And will be gathered together in the air. I'm going to see my mom. I'm going to see my son. I'm going, to be, I'm going to see my sister. And then we'll be caught up with the Lord in the clouds. And so shall we ever. Are you hearing me? All the wrong, all of the tyranny of mankind, all the skeptics of all ages will be put to silence because they will look on him whom they've pierced. And the kingdom of God will be among men. What does Daniel want you to see when you look to your future? Pastor Nathan, if you'd come. What does God want you to see? Not four beasts that are going to devour the world. He wants you to see God on the throne when you don't know what's happening and you're surrounded by uncertainty and what looks like trouble. Remember, church, I said God is on the throne. And when you look at what's going around you, don't think he doesn't know. Everything is being written down for that day that Jesus will return. What does your future look like? Mine looks like Jesus coming back. Jesus coming back. <laughs> Whoo, I feel like dancing a little bit. Stand with me, please. <laughs> I don't know if you can feel what I'm feeling, but God's in the house. This may be one or two. But I believe that Jesus wants to give somebody victory. And you're in a place. And you got to admit this. This will be hard to admit. But you've been depressed. You've been discouraged. <laughs> you've been whining. You've been complaining. You've been criticizing. You're discouraged. You're frustrated. You're angry. And you're forgotten. He's still on the throne. And this isn't, your court date just hasn't been called yet. He's still on the throne. And when you thank God that he extended mercy toward you, you need to thank God that we're still in the day of mercy that can be extended even to your adversaries. If you're in a place where it's just dark where you are, I'm going to pray that the heavens will break through and you'll get to see him on the throne. Different than high and lifted up, we're talking not about him being exalted. We're talking about him being in charge. If you're in that place, we want to pray for you. I want you to just step out from where you are real quickly. Would you come? I know you're here. I don't know who you are where you are, but you need to come right now quickly. We're just going to pray. Thank you. Someone else needs to come. God's going to let you have that assurance this morning that he's on the throne. Come on, anyone else in the balcony? Anyone else need to respond? Need a couple guys to come and pray with us. Would you do that? Need a couple guys to come. Anyone else quickly? Quickly. I need a couple guys over here. We're going to believe that God's going to give a revelation of him on his throne. Now I'm going to ask while they're being prayed for, if you if you really, I need I need a couple ladies over here to come. A couple ladies over here. Would you come? Is there anybody in the house that wants to celebrate? Need a couple guys over here? Just who's coming? Come on, I need someone over here. A couple guys. Need a couple guys to come. Like now. That means your feet need to be moving. I need a couple guys over here on my left. Thank you. need a couple guys to my left. Just pray with them. Just pray with them. Just pray with them. Is there anybody that wants to celebrate this morning the fact that God's on the throne? Is there anybody that wants to celebrate that God's on the throne? 
Well, if you want to celebrate that he's on the throne, I want you to fill this altar space. We're going to praise him for a moment or two. Come on, hurry, run. Come down here, join me. Don't stand there looking at me. I don't have a third eye on my forehead. I want you to come and worship him. Come on, come on, come on. Let's take some time to celebrate. This won't take long. We're going to have a party for a moment. Pastor Nathan's going to lead us. We're going to celebrate that God's on the throne. He's keeping accurate records. And Jesus is coming back. Lamb who was slain. Yes. Holy, holy is he. Sing a new song to him who sits on. Heaven's mercy seat. Worthy is the
you're in the middle of all this and you're saying and what good does that do me today has it changed my circumstance and God would have you know that if he were to ever not be on the throne you'd be forever lost and there's listen to me someone needs to hear this this morning there's not a thing you're enduring today that won't be rewarded in the day of judgment. But we've forsaken houses and lands and family. And Jesus said, more will be given you in the kingdom. There's not a thing you're going through right now that's not in his book that you will not be rewarded for. So remember, in the midst of your darkest hour, he is on the throne and he is keeping track and someday the score will be settled and you can rest in that you can, how does it help me today he's still on the throne and this isn't judgment that's where your mind has been, I want you to know that he loves you enough to let me hear you. And he's saying to you, I've, I've not forgotten where you are. My heart breaks with yours. But the story's not finished yet. There's a celebratory conclusion that will be written if you keep your trust in me. The greater the darkness, the greater the miracle. The brighter he shines, he's still on the throne. Amen. Turn to someone, would you shake their hand, look them in the eye and say, God is on the throne. God is on the throne.